Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, a global merchant and investment bank. Today, Liontree CEO Arya Borkov speaks with Leslie Mallon, who runs the company's public markets division to discuss the impact of the pandemic on the M&A environment, as well as on the sector outlook and what the emerging business landscape might look like as we continue to recover. Enjoy the conversation and continued good health and safety to you and yours. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lion Tree's newest weekly update session. My name is Leslie Mallon, and I head the firm's public markets business. And I'm joined by our founder and CEO, Ari Burkhoff. The goal of these sessions are to share thoughts and perspectives and to stay connected with our client base during these unparalleled times. So we hope that you find them helpful. And we certainly hope everyone and their families are healthy and safe. So REA, the last time we had a discussion like this was at the start of the year when we talked about your year-end letter and the 2020 outlook, and we were together in our New York City conference room. Obviously, a lot has happened since, and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to connect in this way and to chat. Thank you, Leslie. And um, I'm grateful to see that you're healthy, and it's been great to uh, stay extra connected during this time. In the last several update sessions that you've done, you've focused, you know, amongst other things, the initial corporate response of prioritizing health and safety and collectively working through the crisis. You've talked about the powers of a virtual connection and maintaining human connectivity and the upside of scarcity and what can be created during these times. So I thought we could focus a bit more on M&A and sector themes. Of course. Great. So starting with M&A, which obviously is the core business for Liontree, with recent data showing that global deal volumes are down 28% year over year in Q1, a question that I'm getting very often from investors is, when will M&A discussions restart with earnest? What do boards need to see? I would assume it's difficult to complete deals with so much uncertainty. So do we have to wait until fundamentals are recovering and it's more clear what the cycle looks like in terms of the financial impact? Or could we see M&A during weakness as those that have dry powder try to look for opportunities in the pullback? Look, it's not surprising that M&A volumes are down, as you say. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot more volatility around that number, and it could be down even more versus last year. But the whole concept of a benchmark versus last year is kind of talking about um, life as we had it before and life as we know it now. So it's not really a percentage drop or difference. It's really about two stark worlds that we're living in. And, And also, if you put that in context with the fact that I've seen some reports on the second quarter economy in the U.S. will be down between 30 and 40%. That's not surprising that as the economy drops to that degree, that quickly, everything becomes tempered and sobered and maybe even paralyzed in a lot of ways from an activity perspective. I don't feel there's any cessation in dialogue around possibilities. There aren't always possibilities on the offense where there are M&A designed to be opportunistic. Some of them have become discussions around defensive postures or 
How do you secure the foundation of your company? Or what the liquidity looks like? What's the balance sheet look like? Those conversations are happening. Or how's the company? Or how are you dealing with your employees during this time frame? Sharing best practices. We are doing a virtual town hall, which is probably the wrong word, but really just a session every week between 5 and 10 CEOs, a video conference that's very casual. It's usually in the evening, but it's really about checking in with each other and then sharing best practices versus the normal one-on-one conversations. But regardless of the format or the structure, these conversations and these discussions are ongoing. I would say that some are more opportunistic in a planning phase of what would we do as we come out of this into the future when things are more stable. And some of them are more desperate and urgent about fixing and plugging the holes of foundational issues, including liquidity and bolstering balance sheets, which after health and after taking care of your employees, is probably the most important thing is making sure that everyone has the liquidity and the business continuity to see through the end of this period. I guess just taking this a little step further in, in terms of when then decisions are made to affect deals or transactions, do you think we'll start seeing more tuck-in acquisitions or do you feel like boards would be able to get on board with a more of a transformational type of transaction just given the environment right now? All of the above, but I would say the environment is more of a risk-off environment. So companies are not going to be as innovative or far afield of their core competencies and their abilities to execute as they may have been during a period of the top of the bull market where we were even the end of last year. That being said, you may see companies really out of necessity or out of opportunities want to get bigger and more sheltered by virtue of its size. The underpinning of all M&A is the ability to finance a transaction. And that has held up reasonably well primarily due to government and Fed support all the way through not just investment-grade companies, but below investment-grade companies. So the access to capital for many companies, even those that are in a difficult scenario right now from a business perspective, events, cruise lines, travel, have an ability to finance in different ways, privately or publicly. So that is the precursor to M&A. And whether they're cash deals or stock deals, or tuck-ins or transformative deals, I think you'll see all of the above happen still into next year. Now, this is a very tender moment. So none of the conversations we're having today are about the world just fell apart, the economy is struggling, therefore, do you want to do a deal? That would be misrepresenting the kind of conversations we're having. It's much more about what are your goals? What are the objectives? How are you doing? What's the best way to help you through this? And deals, I always view as an output of those conversations not the way that you start. Obviously, ideas matter and opportunities matter. And certain companies will come out as winners and some will come out struggling. And our job is to help everyone navigate through these different challenges. But I think you'll see activity be depressed significantly this year in 2020. But hopefully that gives rise to new forms of activity and and an M&A rebound in 2021. And as you're having these discussions with the the C-level executives... Are they anticipating a V-shaped recovery or are they bracing generally for a more protracted and deeper um, economic situation? There's a few different factors going on here for different constituents of the market or the economy that will help answer that question, which is a good one. There's first and foremost what the health and safety looks like of the people not only in the country, but outside of the U.S. and different parts of the world. 
And we don't really have a handle on that yet, right? There's no vaccine yet. We're just getting the antibodies. We haven't gotten through technology that will help us detect safe spots and ways to come back to a normal way of life or even approaching a normal way of life. So that's the first factor going on right now. And until that's secure, it's really hard to think about what's next. But the second factor is kind of what the markets and the economy look like. And those among themselves are two different factors. The markets have been much healthier than the underlying economy today because over 10 million people have lost their jobs in a very short period of time. And even when those jobs come back, it probably won't come back to 100% where it was before. So even when you think about going to theaters or doing other things that you would normally do, cruise lines, et cetera, you may have 20% of people just say, you know, I'm not going to incorporate that into my life anymore. So there may be a contraction of the underlying economy as a result of this, which will also kind of depress this V-shaped thought process. Now, that being said, what comes down must come back up again, and what goes up must come back down. So there will be a reversion more to the mean. And I do think in certain areas of the market, you will see a recovery faster than people probably anticipate while we're sitting here at the peak of the pain of the crisis right now. Because right now, things seem more dire than they probably end up being when we work our way back into it. Now, you may see Main Street companies have more of a U-shaped recovery where it takes a while for the general marketplace and the general economy to come back. I saw an analysis where, in other cases, you may see the most healthy companies or best capitalized companies or the investor-grade companies have more of a V-shaped recovery. People will travel again, but it'll be done with more constraints. Just think about your own life, how you will come back into the fold, into the economy. I think it'll happen gradually in some areas and more quickly in other areas, but that'll lead overall to a more compressed, contracted economic situation, which I think will persist over the next few years. When the dust does settle, just thinking about the types of assets or industry subsectors that you think will be in more demand as a result of this crisis. For example, in our podcast earlier this year, you talked about video games as being a sector where you expected more investment across media and technology. Does this crisis speed up investment in video games as it, it has shown to be of great value in the entertainment ecosystem? Yeah, well, video games have been somewhat insulated from the factors that we're talking about being outside, events, video games are the opposite. In-home entertainment is a great place to be right now. And video games is a core part of that. And the usage patterns have been really high and surviving nicely. The other things are like YouTube and the impressions that YouTube has had or Netflix or in-home entertainment in general has gone through the roof and been very positive right now. But that being said, you still need to produce the content. You still need to have people get together to create the pipeline of content. And that has slowed down and staggered as a result of the crisis and the social distancing. So it will create, again, more scarcity and I think more health. But again, as we come back, I think you will see concerts come back and I think you will see different outdoor activities come back in a normal way because of ideally a thing like a vaccine that would be comforting, but also some technology and some testing and some ability to control the space more and more. And any technology around that, I think, will be developed. And I think that will create a little bit more of a balance where you want some in-home entertainment and you're going to want some out-of-home entertainment. The other thing is, for the in-home entertainment, you're seeing a lot of impressions and a lot of content on social media 
a lot of new forms of concerts. And even Saturday Night Live had a virtual Saturday Night Live from home on Zoom. But you still need to monetize that. So like when you have the content that can be safely made and constructed from home, and then you have the audience, that's great. But then the next step is, how do you monetize that audience? And that's usually advertising or sponsorship. We haven't seen that yet because a lot of this has been done out of goodwill from everyone shipping in together, whether it's a celebrity or a company or a program. The way that you start to charge for that will be the next transition. Who will have to pay for these services? Even Quibi's launch from Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Katzenberg has had a great start, but it's a free trial. So as people have to pay for that, the transition to monetizing the in-home entertainment from the safety of your home in an environment where the economy is struggling and people have lost jobs, that'll be the transition to watch. What the pricing power really is beyond essential services like healthcare, connectivity, broadband, et cetera, which are going well. Another question that comes up often is whether from a regulatory standpoint, the microscope on deals right now will be less intense given that so many sectors are in disarray. I mean, I would assume that deals that would involve a lot of cost cutting or layoffs would not be well received, but maybe the public sector could come to the rescue in some cases now that they weren't permitted to before. I mean, any thoughts on that? All kinds of implications now about the capital markets and the uses of capital and the return of capital policies, whether it's a dividend or a stock buyback, We've said before that priority after health are your employees, and you put people before profits, and then you put liquidity before shareholder value creation, and you put business continuity right now above everything else. And that's because we're all in this together. The economy is depressed, the markets are choppy, and we're all just trying to make sure the foundation is set so that we can rebuild a new world or a world that accelerates into where it was going anyway, a more virtual existence and fewer shared spaces, et cetera. way that it will affect things like stock buybacks, I think is profound because whether you're taking money from the government or you're just making sure that you are being extra tight with your cost structure, including your employees, it probably will be a long time before you see companies buy back stock with excess capital. You probably won't see a lot of dividend cuts unless people really need the liquidity. But stock buybacks, I think, will have a real shift Companies that are just really still independently oriented and haven't had to do anything with their employees or take any government funds may have an advantage by being able to have capital buy back their stock. I think overall, the stock buyback trend will change for the negative. I don't think you'll see as much of that anytime soon. At the same time, things like social impact investing is going to be a big area and is important in a lot of ways. But now it's really more logical. Like, are you treating your employees correctly? And therefore, these are good companies to invest in because of logical patterns of business continuity. And then you get into like, what is the best asset to buy for that period of time? Or you get into things like direct listings, something that you and I have talked about a lot. Direct listings is a great tool to go public. But again, you go public without raising capital at a time when capital is needed for the first time. People will rethink whether they want to raise capital as part of that process, which is more traditional or really want to go to direct listing. So the companies that ultimately have the capital and the access to capital with a good and healthy focus on their employees and business continuity and the right culture will emerge as winners. But that's all very logical. It just takes a while before we see companies be able to effectuate that on their own versus shareholders choose those winners over time based on things like business continuity and 
the wise decisions coming out of this process. Speaking of those private companies that were on the path to the public markets via IPO, with many of them still unprofitable, maybe high growth, but unprofitable, and now not being able to tap into the public marketplace, do you think that the private market will fund these companies with that type of P&L profile? And what, if any, pressure do you anticipate on valuations? We have seen the private capital come to the rescue of a lot of companies that were on the cusp of going public or could be a potential IPO candidate in the future. Airbnb is an example that comes to mind, where Silver Lake and Sixth Street came in with a billion dollars, split between the two of them for some incremental financing to plug some holes. So there's a lot of private capital out there, whether it's private equity or it's a lending capital and the banks are relatively healthy. And again, I think the public markets are healthier than you would expect in an economy in a crisis like this. So I think access to capital is very much there, but choppy. You know, it's very hard to predict the rate. A lot of people are doing what's called liquidity financing. So taking capital that may be much more expensive than a company may be comfortable with for a shorter period of time, two, three years, bolster your balance sheets, bolster your liquidity, and then know that you're going to refinance those things in the future. Anyway, so the flexibility part of the equation is very, very important right now. But I think companies will take higher cost capital than they're comfortable with just to make sure that they have excess cash to get through the crisis. And that's happening. And I think by and large, there's access to that capital. But again, it's a matter of the cost. You referenced private equity in itself, which collectively, they have a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. And they've been active, as you mentioned, in a couple of situations already within TNT. But do you expect them to be even more active now with all that cash on the sidelines? And if so, really in what form? Could we see an LBO or is there more pipes? What type of activity would you expect out of PE? Well, remember that private equity has two things in a normal situation for a private equity firm. One is they have cash and dry powder and uncommitted capital that can be deployed, which is to play offense and to invest in new opportunities. But they also have an existing portfolio of companies that they have to tend to to make sure are healthy. And so that is about making sure that you take care of your own first before you invest in new things. And every private firm is doing both. They're taking care of their existing portfolio and they're also looking at ways to play offense. And depending on the relative pain or the relative issues or challenges you have in your portfolio, it very much dictates the kind of posture you have in terms of playing into new opportunities, how much risk you want to take. That's the way it works. So there's dry powder, but the first use of that dry powder is to look for opportunities, plug the holes, support the existing portfolio companies, just like a normal CEO of a company would look to make sure that their employees are taken care of before their shareholders right now, uh, therefore before their profits right now, which is not unusual. So you first you take care of your existing portfolio, and then you look for opportunities. They all have cash to spend, all the private equity firms, there's plenty of cash out there. But the other question is, are you getting paid enough for the risk? When you have the Fed and the government really being active in supporting the economy, and a lot of these companies now, whether the bailouts or there's funding or small and medium-sized business benefits or the CARES Act or even checks into people's homes, that buoys the whole market environment and maybe makes the returns for that risk capital less than you would normally think during this crisis. So the government's doing its job in that way, but it also may make some of these private investments not as compelling and attractive as in a pure distressed state when the government's not there. Moreover, the Fed 
supporting the economy today will have some long-term implications for companies that take the capital and for the markets in general. When you print this much money this quickly, we're not worried about it now because we're trying to stabilize a very tough situation. But one year, two years, five years down the road, you could see an effect of that. We did talk about that in our beginning of the year outlook. What are the risks for inflation, interest rate increases, and obviously corporate taxation increasing? Those three factors, inflation, interest rates, and corporate taxes, starting this year, were at all-time lows in a very healthy way. Now that the Fed has taken action, given this crisis as an unforeseen event, we may see implications around inflation or other things in the future because of this activity. But obviously, it's worth taking that risk. But it's something that may lead to better opportunities in the future in the private markets versus in a moment when the government's also backstopping the economy. I wanted to um, shift gears a little bit and focus on specifics about the sector. Ari, what change do you see as permanent with some of the themes recently? And maybe there's a nuance to that is, will there be a change in growth leadership coming out of this? Or does it more just accelerate the trends for those that were already winning? I think things have definitely changed. Maybe not a reset as much as everyone likes to talk about a reset, but maybe in some ways an accelerant. An article was sent to me in Foreign Affairs about the fact that the coronavirus and the health crisis is accelerating where we were going to always go. More respect for the planet, more connection between humans, more virtual space, more focus on what's important in life and priorities, more of a focus on scarcity versus abundance. Those are good things to think about now, but probably where we should go anyway. So I think things do change in a lot of ways. I think that's what happens when you go through a crisis. And if you don't actually change or go through some adjustments, then it's a bit of a wasted opportunity. The economy is definitely going to be a dampening effect on everything we're looking at. And I think it'll take a while before we uh, get back to normal levels. That being said, companies still want a broader portfolio of media and technology assets. The technology companies still have a lot of cash and a lot of reach and probably a lot more to put on those platforms. You still have a huge shift to e-commerce from retail, which has probably been accelerated from this environment where e-commerce is of much more importance today than retail locations, which obviously has a fall-on effect on commercial real estate and other storefronts, etc. That will be an accelerant to where we're going anyway. In-home entertainment is still very, very important. We're seeing that everywhere. But I just think that the dollars at work will be dampened. The other effect is globalization. Like, We are in a period of globalization in a big sense, which is health. My wellness is tied up in your wellness. And no matter where we are in the world, we're tied together in this. We've seen that everywhere. At the same time, the more protectionist we are, the more nationalistic we are, the more that companies may operate within their borders, uh, people may travel less, etc. At the end of the day, these are also factors that we have to consider that the supply chains may change to a more in-home marketplace versus taking a pure global approach. Certainly travel, I think, will pick up, but travel may be more targeted in areas that you can control. I think things are overall going to accelerate to where we thought they were going to go anyway, by and large, but in a more sobering and contracted way versus a period of just pure growth and abundance. Just following up to the tech companies, which you mentioned, Do you now think they will get more aggressive with content as a result and try to take advantage of some of the additional pressure on traditional media? Yeah, I think they already are. If you're a tech company, you have to have a solution in the home for entertainment. 
at least provide the platform for it. Google's a great example with YouTube, obviously. And Amazon, I think also, and Apple, I mean, they're going to probably have to you know, bolster their offerings. The question is, do the content companies keep pace? Can they make the content? Can they produce the content? Do they have the right kind of content for today? What the patterns look like? I mean, one part of the industry that's changing a lot is sports. The whole sports ecosystem is tied together between the leagues, the team owners, the players, the media companies, the broadcasters, and then the platform players, whether it's a cable company or a technology platform or a satellite company or a telephone company, whatever it is. And the cost structure has to change when the model is changing and the ability to watch games and the ability to go to events and the production costs of these events are very high. Everything's going to have to shift and get dampened a little bit here. But I think that doesn't mean that the technology companies don't want to have sports. It won't be as frothy in my mind in terms of pricing. It'll have to be rethought a little bit on the economic models and broken down somewhat. But I still think the technology platforms will have content, yes. Talking on sports, this is a big year for sports just in that. you know The NFL is a critical piece of content for many of the companies in our sector. And negotiations were you know, really supposed to kick off this year. So any thoughts on how the negotiations themselves could be impacted as a result of the crisis? Well, there's a lot of sports contracts from a league perspective to the media outlets that are up for renewal in the next couple of years, this year or next year. So it's not a great time to call the card here because obviously you're not playing the sports. It's hard to charge for the broadcast. Now, that being said, the media companies have a longer term perspective, but everyone's going to have to work together to see how this game is going to change. Frankly, if you don't have as many people in the stands, where you practice more safe distancing when you go to a game, it puts a premium on being able to watch the game at home and everyone's longing for different programming or sports or anything that can bring families together and gather people at least in the home or outside the home around a positive like spirited influence like sports does. I think most of the broadcasters and I think most of the media companies will take a longer term approach on sports and tech platforms and will still embrace it, but they're going to have to see from the leagues how things are going to change. Even the production costs around sports is way too high. You're going to have to find different ways to produce an event. You may see a premium for things like tennis versus football on a relative basis because tennis is a lot cheaper to produce than an American football game. So you have to figure out everything. The whole ecosystem is tied together in sports and everyone's going to have to share some of the pain and probably redistribute some of the upside. Do you think that the sports leagues are going to have a greater bias to digital platforms than they would have had pre the COVID-19 crisis? Of course, there's going to be a greater bias to in-home entertainment, digital distribution, et cetera, and the highest quality brands will therefore rise to the top. So when you're in a digital environment, which is fundamentally more crowded, brand recognition matters, quality matters creativity matters, unique programming matters, that all will go to the top. And there will be a greater bifurcation of the top quality programming and the price that those can generate in terms of CPMs or ad dollars or value or subscription services versus everything else. That being said, digital is also, because it's crowded, has a lower price point than traditional media. So it will accelerate the outcome to digital versus traditional but with that comes a lower cost structure and a lower price point. So again, an economy that has peaked and now has to create some sort of normalcy has to reset value creation lower, 
which would mean lower stock prices and lower valuations and may create a need for greater M&A and greater diversification around different platforms to withstand some of that narrow growth issues to basically find new ways to find growth that don't have traditional legacy models or cannibalistic factors around it. In addition to sports, before this pandemic, you know, experiential and live events, that was such a key theme for the sector and obviously one of the hardest hits as a result of the crisis. And there's very limited visibility as to when folks are going to go back to the old ways behaviorally. So when is it time to make investments into those types of sectors? And will it force consolidation? I mean, what happens to theaters? What happens to theme parks? Is it too early to make investments there? What's your perspective on that? It's definitely too early in my mind for many of us to be uh, taking on risk. There's so many different unknowns still. So it's very hard for me to say we should jump in and make investments right now. Plus, you have a lot of stability in the marketplace that is, like I said, doing valuations now higher than you normally see because of support from the Fed and the government and private capital already. And then I would say a lot of the factors we're talking about are not unknowns. Everything that we can talk about is something that everyone's talking about. It's, are you going to go back to movie theaters? Are you going back to events, casinos, cruise lines, theme parks, all those things? We're still in a period of time where everyone's resetting the foundation. And therefore, I don't think the market is investable today. I don't look at this as an investable moment. I look at this as assessing, planning, and looking further out than everyone's echo chamber conversations today because play the long game, settle in. We are not going to be able to solve this or have decisions that will lead to investment opportunities, much less the stable health environment overnight. There's no silver bullet today. But that being said, I think everything comes back to some fashion. I don't think there's a zero-sum game where this is now over and gatherings of this kind are now gone. I don't think that's the case. I think people kind of will migrate back to normal patterns. It just will happen more gradually. There'll be different forms of activities incorporated into life. Even the TikTok rage today will get subdued a little bit when people have other things that they can focus on. And there are going to be some forms of gatherings. It may be different from what you expected or what you experienced before, but it will come back in some way in my mind. But I think, again, when you're investing into a middle ground approach versus an extreme, it's hard to get paid for that return. I don't believe it's the right moment to invest in a kind of V-shaped snapback or anything like that. That will make it look like this was just a nightmare. A lot of this is sustained in our ecosystem, our psychology, and our way of doing things. I just don't believe in that we'll live in either extreme. It'll be a gray area. And it'll be that way for a long time. Ari, the last theme that I wanted to touch on is wireless and 5G. Any sense for if this pandemic has slowed the 5G infrastructure build out? There's been some press focus on this lately, given that it underpins the offering of many next generation connectivity services like IoT or autonomous cars. Do you think you know this is still on track? Or any perspectives there would be great. I think everything it's reasonable to assume will be delayed somewhat. Even the priority of the mind share of the corporations and the executive suites that are making these decisions and these capital deployments have been appropriately refocused and shifted into the here and now versus the capex for the future. I would expect there would be delays. That being said, the companies that I'm talking to that a lot of our clientele represents are very well capitalized. 
They have strong balance sheets and they are progressing as planned their uh, 5G deployment. I just think it'll take a little longer, personally. But at the same time, you now know that connectivity is paramount and having the digital economy really function, you need connectivity at higher and higher speeds and higher bandwidth applications and, and 5G is part of that. And other providers are also playing to that. And I think you're going to see everyone that can afford it take on more speed, more connectivity, more bandwidth, and even willing to pay for it. It's the underpinning of our new economy is this digital connectivity that allows for human connectivity in all respects, in all kinds of crises that is here to stay. And thankfully that works. You know, everyone's getting jokes and a little uh, meme sent to them over again here. Someone sent me like, imagine if we were here 10 years ago with a flip phone and limits on our minutes that we could use and, and a dial-up service. That would be difficult on top of everything else we're dealing with. So at least by and large, things are working. And even in rural areas where there's been some spots in the country and the US and other countries where the access is not there, I think the industry will bend over backwards to, to fill those gaps and working in private public partnerships to make that happen on an accelerated level to make sure everyone's connected because that's become the primary asset and the infrastructure spend and the infrastructure focus that's going to come out of the governments and private sector is going to be a, a huge area of focus. And I think appropriately so. So to close out our discussion, as seen in the past, you know, renewed entrepreneurship and new business models have emerged out of periods of economic and social crisis. So from your lens, are there any areas in particular that you would highlight along these lines as you look out into the future? I certainly think AI and robotics, things that take some pressure off the human race to do everything ourselves is probably going to continue to accelerate. I think payments platforms will still be very, very important in terms of uh, digital payments. I think the big debate is going to be privacy is going to come back, especially as we now are going to be so welcoming of innovation and technology from a health perspective. How far are we willing to go to give up our privacy to ensure our health? So, for example, if there was an app that could tell you that anyone around you right now is virus-free and has a strong immune system and is healthy in a safe space, that requires a give up of privacy. How much are people willing to sacrifice that for the benefit of a known and safe society? How much capital are you willing to take from government or non-traditional sources with certain restrictions that come with that because you need it for sustaining your business? So I think we're going to get into these kind of debates or how you prioritize scarce resources, whether it's capital or healthcare, compassion or time. I think it all goes back to tightening what's important to you and tighten your inner circle and shedding the peripherals and coming out of the huddle stronger than before with what's important to you and you have to be smart about it and keep fresh and keep the quality and creativity thresholds very, very high as normal. We did talk about that in January as well. But that hasn't changed. And I think the more we communicate with each other and the more that we solve problems together and be open to that of all kinds, it'll lead to a lot more happiness. And I think we have to try to solve these issues and, and reduce inequality and increase the foundational benefits of healthcare and other things that we can depend on so that we can be as bold as we can in this world. But to be bold, you really need a strong foundation. Well, thank you so much, Aria. Great chatting with you. Appreciate your insights. And I look forward to actually seeing you face-to-face, -face, hopefully sometime soon. Thank you. Leslie, I appreciate it. 
I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. Audiation.